this podcast? You have a podcast. I have a podcast. It's gross. I don't know. Like, are, have we hit peak podcast? I don't think so. No. <laughs> you think it's gonna keep <laughs> going from here? More out there. Yeah. Something will change in the way we yeah. categorize them or something. But no, I think right now we're there, a big explosion is on its way. We can both agree to that. You think we're tip of the iceberg right now? Well, with everything. I mean, it's just do you can you keep up with your email, with your text? No, with your sure, posts, but you know, your... I mean, like you know, had had a. The conversation I had with a lot of people were all sort of standing around at a bar and everyone's talking about the podcast that they eventually want to, to launch. And everybody always comes to the same conclusion that there's enough that we don't need to launch another podcast. Right. Because- and then someone who's an author will say, you could just said, you could say that anytime about books. Are there not enough books? I think, though, that the barrier of entry is so low with podcasts that that changes the math a little bit. Maybe. You really have to devote yourself to a book. I mean, I could. True. I could launch 10 podcasts in the next week. (laughs) I could. If I had the wherewithal, I could go home after work every single night and create two new podcasts. sounds like a hilarious competition. How many podcasts can you put together in one week? But this is the conversation that we end up having when we're standing around is everybody trying to come up with their best niche gimmick podcast. And I think that's, that's the problem. And that's sort of the problem that you run into with book publishing at the same time is a lot of people I, I would love to write a book yeah just never really come it up is, with something it is a long project i mean that's not true you could write a uh, short story or you could write um a couple poems yeah i'm a blogger yeah i have been a blogger by trade for a very long time and for me to really devote myself to something that i'm going to spend a couple of years doing i've got to feel like i have a really good idea isn't there there, there are so many perhaps myths Uh, of people who wrote books, and I'm thinking really much more in the Mm -hmm. self-help genre, like over- I don't feel like I have any help to give to overnight. people. Overnight. You know what I mean? Like, I, like what what sort of help am I going to give someone? I don't know, man. Maybe yeah. that is the true kind of help people need. a Someone that leads them that admits that they don't know. The one-eyed man? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The trickster. When you wrote your book, where were you at in life? When was it where clear? Where was I at? Oh, my when, when was it clear that there was yeah. something that you want to spend multiple years of your life working on? Yeah, I, you know, my my journey... Uh, <laughs> is that the first is that the first chapter it came it came together over so many years yeah because i wrote the little pieces i was telling these stories on stage and i would have a document that i would work off of even though the way i told them on stage would be a little different but i, you, I needed a document to go back to and so i just started having all like just a a file of all these stories and then i actually went through a couple i, I had an agent who, you know, they wanted a proposal. So I had an agent. I wrote a a proposal and put them all together under a very different framework uh, for a year. Oh, my God, I toiled on that document. It's very hard to make someone who is not used to writing a marketing document write a marketing document about themselves because it was also a memoir. It felt like marketing yourself? Yeah, because you're saying, like, why should you be interested in this book? Why should you be interested in my story? What other books are out there and why is this going to be better than all of those books? Why was it going to be better than all those other books? What was your hook? My hook was – what was my hook at the time? I feel like my hook has almost been unhooked because of the way we talk about sex and stuff now. Well, that just means you were, you know, at the front of the zeitgeist, Yeah, at the time. I was like here's I was like my hook is that I talk about relationships candidly and I like guys and this is not about male bashing and I've had a lot and uh, that I've had a lot and the fact that it was a woman talking about sex in a frank way still felt pretty novel at the time yeah and that I wasn't ashamed of it yeah I think that was the big 
moment, not being ashamed yeah. of it. Because that, when I did book tours, I just kept having to answer that question over and over and over again. Like, basically, why are you ashamed of, of just yourself? The, the volume or the actual stories? I mean, a little bit. Like, how can you talk about it so yeah. openly? It was a little bit of that and a little bit of, like, shouldn't you... Yeah, for people that have a more maybe a tr- more traditional point of view of how you find the right person to be with, or a more traditional view of s- who you should have sex with. Let's relive that question now. Was that something that you had to kind of ease into? No, I no? mean I, I was surprised it was even. I mean I come at it's so many things like an idiot because <laughs> I assume people think like me. So that's always a bad way to start. It isn't. It isn't. When it comes to just going out there and telling your story, that's maybe a it's not bad. It's a like a quality. weird defense mechanism yeah. almost, right? But also it means you're going to get better stories out of it because you're not holding anything back. Hopefully. Yeah. And then when I, when I hear someone come back to me and go, well, shouldn't you be ashamed? I mean, really, I was just shocked. I was like, why? And part of what that is is that – and I kept saying I made all my choices. Like I, I, I was aware of my choices. There was never a time where I was like they weren't all good choices. Sure, I'm probably ashamed of most of the things I did in my 20s at this point. But in the realm of, sure, you can be ashamed of that, but like really darkly like, oh, I I need to repent. This is a sin, you know, on that level. I think they were looking for like, God, I feel so terrible. I wish I would have just married the guy out of high school and been more of a pure woman. These are people who are coming out to your book tour? Having yeah. that visceral reaction to it? Yeah, the 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 book is called Screw Everyone yeah. <laughs> Sleeping My Way to Monogamy. I assume to some degree, it, it probably depends on where you are, there are just people who go to the book night. There was some of that. I think some, some people were just honestly curious. And, you know, sometimes yeah. people ask a question, and I say it from this point of view, honestly curious, because sometimes people ask a question that they are trying to answer for themselves. Yeah. They're uncomfortable with it. So they have like a couple, they're like, oh, maybe I got a little drunk that night and slept with this guy. Or maybe like that kind of two years of my life where I did this, that, the other. Like I never really came to terms with it. And then they saw me on the other hand being like, blah, 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 and this was this and this was that. And that was kind of dumb, but I did it anyways. And you know what? This is what I got out of it. And I'm still coming from a point of view where I'm going to tell you that I'm smart. I knew who, know who I am. I'm not unhinged. I am, I'm a citizen. There's a line between not necessarily feeling shame, but actually being compelled to tell the story to people. There is that angle of it too. So then why tell it? But I guess that was, I didn't know when I started with these stories, as many of us don't know, and we are just like, well, here's what I want to say about this. I thought I was relating, entertaining Mm -hmm. relationship stories from my life. I didn't know until I was telling them that I was adding to a particular conversation and maybe even adding a voice to that was defending a certain kind of woman and also challenging a certain kind of point of view because it was the sort of slut-shaming thing that I kind of walked into and I didn't know I was walking into it because I didn't get it. Because I was also raised with a mother that, not in so many words, but kind of was like, find the right thing. Like, don't... What's the rush? Yeah. Did she get married young? Did she have you young? She did get married young. She, I mean, we're talking an entirely different story yeah. because she got married at the end of World War II in Nijmegen, Holland, to a British soldier from Israel. Israel didn't even really 
exist yet, uh, but that region, kind of Palestine, who was in uh, Holland at the with the resistance. She got married young, but she had you much later. Yeah, she got married. That's right. My timeline is adding up. You're right. She got married at 16. She didn't have me till 43. Yeah. So there you go. My parents were, I have an older sister, and they were young when they had her. Yeah. And they were still fairly young when they had me. And I do that math in my head of where I was at that point in my life. And I'm willing to forgive them for pretty much everything that they did. Ridiculous. I did the same thing as my mother, but I only had my first child super late. So now... I feel like my child will never be able to forgive me. Except they'll just be like, what did she know? She was so old and out of touch. You still get to be the cool mom, though, right? You're, Maybe. You're on, you got a movie coming out. You're on NPR. I mean, this is a pretty solid Maybe. resume for being the cool mom. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. You know, no one ever thinks their parents are... You wanted to just go on stage. You wanted to perform. You wanted to be a comedian. You wanted to do yeah, storytelling. I, I was doing stand-up. I didn't know about storytelling until I moved to New York, really. And Wait, then... At what point do these stories start to filter in? So in Toronto, people were doing one-person shows. Mm. That was like a big thing, a solo show. And I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. And so every once in a while, there would be like a little thing where you could do a story, but still... That was still, it didn't really make it to stage. It was like a weird night or a a workshop someone was teaching. And then I came. Open mic almost. Yeah. And then I came to New York and it was, well, the moth. I discovered the moth. And I I was, my stand-up at the time, when I moved here, one-liners was the trend. I mean, it's still great. We're talking like your Mitch Hedbergs. Absolutely. Yeah. And like great misdirection. Really clever one liners. Mm-hmm. It wasn't exactly how I wrote. And I remember just feeling like I didn't know where I belonged in the scene. Did you move to New York to do stand up? Yeah. What an Oof. idiot, right? Oh my God. How was that first six months of your experience? So, six months. Yeah. So, I was doing, you know, the truth is I was doing okay in Canada. Yeah. I was doing all right in Canada. And That's kind I- of the thing about Canada. There's such a sort of a nativism of, you know, obviously there's, what is it, like the one third rule that they have up there of on radio and TV of getting all Canadian of the Canadian. Content artists up there they love cheerleading people up there so and it's obviously geographically larger but a much smaller country smaller population uh, next to the geography yeah and they do there is a a great push in television radio and film for canadian content and there's obviously a lot of talent up there um so yeah the the numbers are more in your favor i mean especially compared to new york i don't know what it would be like let's say if i started doing stand-up in, I'm just trying to think of a smaller town. Well, let's say uh, if I started doing stand-up in Cleveland, Ohio, maybe my experience of stand-up in the beginning would have been similar because I have a smaller scene to deal with. There's a, a few clubs, a little bit more wealth. Do you feel like you conquered Toronto and now I need to move to New York? Well, I had this thing going on in Toronto where first I've always loved New York. Then I moved here. No, I still love it, but now I'm pissed off at it. How many years later is it now? 15. Yeah, well, Uh, you're kind of (laughs) stuck. Yeah, right. Because you're just like, where else? The jail mentality. But tangent, someone recently told me like, oh, yeah, a lot of people have that. And then you leave. And then you're like, why did I think I couldn't leave? And now you've got a kid. So that must be pulling you even more in that direction. Yeah, I just, who knows? I'm thinking Alaska. Anyhow, in Toronto, people talk about New York a lot. Toronto's a great city. I think it's actually, in the 15 years since I've left, its self-esteem has improved significantly. But there was such an uh, ongoing to- conversation about New York and New York and New York and Toronto's like New York and which is better, Toronto and New York, and are they this, how are they different? And I just, I finally went, why don't I just go to this place we keep talking about? Yeah. And so I moved 
kind of in secret. I moved here. How does one move in secret? Uh, you tell two people, mm. one of them you being your boyfriend at the time and one of them being your roommate. Oh, actually three people. One of them, the other person that's storing your stuff. You pack up all your stuff in someone's basement because people have basements. And then you pack some clothes and you buy a one-way ticket. Why in secret? Because I was afraid of failing. There's a thing that happens. <laughs> it happened quite often in... Uh, Toronto yeah. where comics would get some heat behind them and they would be like I'm moving to LA it was mostly LA they would go I'm moving to LA sometimes New York and they would throw some big I'm moving away party mm. and high five everybody I've made it see you at the top or you'll be watching me from the top or whatever and then six months year later they would be back you called it the prison mentality and it's almost like stockholm syndrome too that we have here <laughs> where it's just like the sense of I need to push through Whatever terrible thing is happening, because if I can't make it in the city, I'm a failure. Yeah. I was so afraid of failing and then having to admit it. So I just was like, well, it's just my, here's my great problem solving technique. Oh, we could just lie around that <laughs> to everyone. You don't think people the, would notice that you're gone two, three, four months? They finally did. The biggest, actually, here's the biggest lesson I learned from that. Nobody cared what I was doing. I could have thrown a party. I could have not thrown a party. I could have moved in secret. I've gotten moved in secret. I mean, like, no one was like, whoa, whoa. I mean, a couple of people were like, that's weird that you did that. It is interesting because you were doing it almost as though it was something you were ashamed of. Yep. This was a big secret you didn't want to tell anyone that you were moving to New York. Yeah, because I think I, I just assumed I wouldn't yeah. make it. Did you get close to moving back? No. No? <laughs> I got close to getting kicked out. <laughs> of the country? <laughs> of, of the U.S. I mean, you know, at a certain point I had yeah. to get my immigration in order. Sure. And that was, that's daunting. Not a failure through your inability to make a living being a stand-up. Oh, you know what? I learned very quickly that, well, it took me a very long time to make a living as a stand-up. Uh, and somehow, I think I came in here a little bit guns ablazing, little tiny, tiny, tiny Canadian guns shooting feathers. But I was like, I've done this show. I've been on this show doing stand-up in Canada. And I've been on this show in stand-up doing Canada. So what day can I be at your club? You know, and people would be like, well, our amateur night is on Tuesday. Tuesdays and you have to bring 10 people for a five minute and I just I didn't understand it. you start exactly where everybody else starts people who've never really been on stage before yeah yeah no one cared and then no one cares to I mean there is a thing with New York because it's such a big place and it's very transient on some level that you you really do have to get to know people like people need to know that you're around for a while oh and the comedy scene here is so insular and I think there's this UCB mafia it seems like yeah, some, sure. to somebody on the outside where it's great because they help each other out but if you're over here here on the side and aren't a part of that it's probably really hard to break through yeah and people i mean people do a lot for their friends and their relationships yeah. a matter of fact i feel like every gig i have ever i've ever gotten of worth was because of someone recommending me a comic a sound engineer like really someone that I'm around. I had these friends who I think really just sort of broke into the comedy scene by just literally just hanging out. Hanging out. So, I mean, I, I forget who, where we can trace this exact thing back to, but that whole idea of like, you just got to show up. Yeah. Like whoever is the uh, patient zero of that bit of wisdom, there is absolutely, there is some luck and blah, blah, blah. Did you give yourself a timeline? No, I think I've never been very good at that. I think I started with a year or something, but yeah. it was really, you know, because it, I didn't have any money. <laughs> It was really more like, when it just stops, I'll know. I was so hand-to-mouth. I was crashing on people's couches yeah. and living with my friend in the basement of her store in the East Village for a while. And then I had sublets, but they were the couch of a one-bedroom. Like, just everything was odd and 
impermanent that it was, you know, it just felt like I was on the last, my last life of a video game. And I was just waiting to find something that would actually buy me another life. The people who do it for a really long time, who never, never really break through, I can't imagine. I can, you know, three, four, five years later and still sleeping on people's couches and still trying to break in at a certain point. Is it just sort of time to give up your dreams? Well, it depends how you look at your dreams, right? What if you do it because something inside of you is just saying to you, this has to be done. Like, yeah. what if every time you get on stage, you're like, I'm doing this because I have to do this. My cousin wanted to be a professional writer, and I gave him the same talk that somebody gave me in college of, you know, only do this if you know that there's nothing else, else that you, you can could possibly do. do. And when you're doing those other things, when you're working those retail jobs, are you thinking about doing that thing all the time? Yeah. And then you get to do that thing all the time, and you look at someone working in retail and go... That looks so great. That looks so awesome. So you we get this. No. You, know, you, have, you have retail jealousy? I, no. I assume you worked retail jobs at a certain point? I worked point. retail. I grew up in a grocery store, so I, I worked behind a cash register since I was a child and worked retail jobs, a lot of retail yeah, jobs. I don't get this anymore. I used I got job nightmares all the time when I worked retail. Like what kind like of job? Like I would wake up in the middle of the night and the till would be wrong. <laughs> and I, then you would have to balance out again. Yeah, it would be, literally be like – it would literally be people coming up to the cash register i don't know what it was okay. but i would get stress nightmares around that i have to tell you something you just said brian a very you said a shop talk word till mm -hmm. not every person knows no. what a till is no i'm so happy to hear I had that to word. We, i had to balance the till <laughs> it was the minutia of that job that would kill me i worked at trader joe's in california before trader joe's oh. or at least the trader joe's i worked at had the little uh, scanners right so you're actually looking at prices there's a lot of frozen foods the stickers would fall off. So it, it was actually going through and having to memorize the different prices on things because every time you didn't know the price of something, you would have to call it out. Right. And I consider my job to be reasonably high stress now, and I just don't have job nightmares the way I did when I worked retail. Yeah, and you had long lines to contend with. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's the thing. There was volume situation there. All my retail jobs were pretty low volume. Do you miss the stability? No. You know, I, I have this thing sometimes where ugh, this is so – this just speaks to the small ego I probably have where because I've worked retail jobs, there's a certain kind of job I feel like I just know how to do completely. Yeah. Now, do I know how to use every cash register out there right now? No, I don't. Okay. I'm behind you feel more with my cash register confident in your till jockeying ability than you do in hosting an NPR show. No, do you ever walk into a store and go and it's like you're frustrated and annoying because you you can't get done as a, cons a customer what you need to get done and you look at the people working there and you're like if I worked here for one day this entire place would be that is something I, I don't I don't want to say it's unique to New York but it is a very New York thing of every single person behind the cash register not giving a fuck about you. Right. I don't know what it is about the city specifically, but this is pretty close to across the board, unless it's like a small mom-pop store. Yeah. But every chain, they're, they're all on their phones, they're all talking to each other, and it's just sort of taken for granted that, you know, people aren't very social with strangers here the way they are elsewhere. So there's no obligation for small talk with somebody behind the register. Yeah, right. And I, I kind of get used to it. And I've joked around too about how once you get used to it, and then you are in a small town, and they do talk to you, you're like, uh, no, 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 we're done. Somebody talking to you on the plane? <laughs> oh, God. The worst. You're I've like, got this for four this hours? conversation. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I, I was just, I keep saying Alaska, but I was just in Anchorage, Alaska, 
And there is a, if uh, for any of the women out there listening, if you want to feel like a supermodel, go to Anchorage because I think there's about 20 guys for every girl. The ratio, you are you are the prize yeah. possession. And I hate that terminology I just used. But anyways, I was sitting at a bar and a guy immediately asked if he could buy me a drink. And I just didn't want, first, I didn't want that in general. But I didn't even want it for the sake of chatter. And I actually said, you know what? I love paying for myself. <laughs> That's what I said. I'm an independent woman. There is nothing I think more unattractive than saying that to him. Perhaps to I can guy. buy you a drink, sir. <laughs> and he, he just like literally was like taking taken aback and uh, he hightailed it. Where does this jealousy stem from of retail? Oh, yeah. Just, just the idea of doing something well. I mean, I, I yeah. do. I do performing is such a um it's a sometimes you, i i am looking for a finite result right that's the one thing that i do sometimes idealize how do you mean finite well because it's sort of my friend said it best he goes you know it must be great to be a baker you follow the directions you yeah. put it in the oven out comes the pie done so satisfied right you do a joke on stage it gets a big laugh you're like could it be bigger you don't, you don't think that you don't different. think bakers go through a similar process? You know, could this cake be bigger? I mean, <laughs> yeah, baker probably maybe isn't the best example just because, you know, obviously there's a certain amount of creativity involved. But there's a lot of science. Yeah. Although uh, now that I watch the British Bake Off show just started, I'm still catching up. I do. Yeah, you're right. But there's, I would say I would say a spectrum. A crossing guard. Crossing guard. Either all those kids make it to the other side or they don't. There's basically two different results you could have there. You yeah. know if you've done a good job because none of the kids have died. <laughs> It's a it's a low stakes job. It's a high stakes it's a job. High stakes job. Super high stakes, low low I guess requirement or whatever. Yeah, it's very yeah. very low skill set. I'm gonna say in the vast majority of times crossing guards get kids across the street. So this is no how attuned I am to playing uh to hosting a NPR show. Every single every single time we've had a conversation of uh-huh. this ilk, which now I feel like we've had ten. I go in my mind, oh my God, Brian's now going to have to deal with all these angry emails from crossing guards going like, we have tons of skills. Oh no, I think what they do Brian's is very now important. Brian's going to have all of these very angry important. emails. But also, them. I want to say maybe you shouldn't be listening to a podcast <laughs> while you're helping children across the street. You have one job. Yeah. So how long did it really take for you to start making a living as a stand-up? What kind of living are we talking? Paying rent. Paying rent and food. Let's start with... Well, let's start with rent. I would say once it was when I really, I mean, this is not an uncommon story, when I really started hitting the road. So I think you about, had to get out of New York. I had to get out of New York. And that's when you start making, you know, sizable chunks yeah. of change for a weekend. So I think that I and also actually I started getting some road gigs with the moth. That was a really big deal. Is New York a good place to move to, to establish yourself? I mean, obviously the downside of it is that there's 8 million other people trying to do the same thing. Yeah, well, I think this could be changing now, actually. Now that everybody's moving to LA? Or wherever, like because technology has allowed people to get their stuff out there just from wherever they are. I do think, though, there's so... You're community has a huge effect on you and the quality of the other comedians in New York I still think is so good and so high and it's it is competitive but it's really people keeping each other sharp and there's 
so many different points of view, you're not even in a rut where mm-hmm. it's like everyone's just talking about the same thing. So you feel that in order to advance your craft, it was important that you moved to a city like New York? Yeah, I mean, I, I needed just the, the pure push and the excitement. And the ability and to go out every night. The ability and, to go out every night. To I a mean, different crowd. That's totally unique, I think, still here. L.A. now has a very, very good scene, too. But it is amazing how many shows you can do here. I mean, there's almost too many shows. You could, I mean, there's like 17 bar shows probably yeah. around the block from this place tonight. You were doing pretty standard stand-up yeah. and pretty standard stand-up clubs. Yep. And then at one point you kind of stumbled into your group of weirdos at the Moth. I went to the New Rican Poetry Cafe, yeah. which is down the Lower East Side in between C and D avenues, which at the time, no, I think even when I went there, people were like, B is as far as you go. Oh, Alphabet City. I know, right? So funny. And so, yeah, Alphabet City. I remember listening to that Prince song being like, I wonder one day I'll be there. And then, and the, this thing was the moth that was happening. And this was a story slam where people could put their name in the bag if they wanted to tell a five minute true story about whatever the theme was. I mean, at that time, it must not have seemed like a thing that you could really be successful doing. No, it was totally a labor of love. It was this tiny thing and in this, this tiny club. But it was, a, the the community of it was it totally different than stand-up because it was writers and yeah it was like writers and artists it just seemed like the audience itself not so much even the people that were going up to tell stories were really intelligent not that all stand-up audiences aren't intelligent but many of them are not intelligent i talk about this on the show a lot there's there's a thing that you in stand-up that you don't get in most other art forms where for music for example you know people generally don't say oh we're gonna go see music tonight yes this, people say oh god this is so know, true we're gonna we're going to go see this band at yes. this place i yes. mean maybe they'll go see jazz music but stand up especially if you've ever been to one of those places in Times square for example it's just a thing to do on a night regardless of who you're going to see do it and forgive me if this is you've you've gone down this road before but then the expectation of the audience seems so ridiculous i mean their expectation they went out to see comedy and then I'm on stage and they're mad because I'm not talking about what they want to hear. Sure. How is that fair? I remember <laughs> years and years like, ago. Shouldn't they just be like, and therefore, because we made this choice, we are open to everything. This is well before he had a successful podcast. I remember going to see Mark Marin. Yeah. And the guy before him who got a lot more laughs than he did, and this is no reflection on Mark Maron's abilities to stand up. This was close enough after 9-11 that you could get a lot of laughs doing an Arab accent. Sure. It was just, I remember that. It was just such Ooh, a weird... Chilling and weird. Yeah, but especially... To, and then to see you know Mark get up and do his like, progressive stand-up, yeah. but it doesn't really... It's not like they're curating stand-ups. Oh, no. It's weird. I mean, it's just yeah. a bunch of people back-to-back. I mean, some clubs put some thought into you know representation on stage in terms of like, we need a, a white guy and a woman and a person of color. I mean, there there is those formulas out there. I don't get the feeling this is what was happening on that specific night Probably there might not. have been a woman on there but i don't think it was because of uh, you know gender inequality i mean the amount of times i've had to g- go up you know and the mc will be in the middle but sometimes they are told don't do any time in between yeah. or sometimes they just make that decision and the comic before me will have just told some like gratuitous misogynistic 
rape joke where the woman is the victim clearly and everyone thinks it's hilarious because that's where that audience is up and then the MC is like great all right let's keep the show rolling Ophira Eisberg and you're like really yeah this is this is where I get to start Moth has obviously changed a lot since then and 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 i mean this in the best way possible but it's kind of become a machine now oh um, it's it's so different yeah. we had Catherine burns on the show yes i know and i was really fascinated by the the training that they give to people now you know they i mean obviously especially with the bigger ones it's not just people standing on stage they'll workshop yes a story for you and that must have not been the case back then i feel like still with their main stages because i did a I did a main stage with a a very sad story. I'm going to say it was probably almost 10 years ago. Mm. And they didn't do a lot of work with it. But at the time, the expectation was still that you come for a rehearsal where you tell the story and people offer feedback. The director, you have a director. At the time, you weren't assigned a director. Now they're a little bit more streamlined with their approach. But you're in a room of the um, artistic directors and and people working on the stories. And they offer feedback to help shape your story or if it needs to be shortened or lengthened or if something is unclear so there was still that sort of directorial process yeah. now i think they've just they they've you know they've had 20 this 20 year anniversary so they've had time to actually really figure out how to do it and make it effective there's a moth story format Yes, now, there's a moth story it, format. In the way that in the way that a lot of NPR shows sound similar to one another, there's this kind of template. That's right. Which, you know, and in some ways you could be like, that's weird. How can you how yeah. can you run a story through a template? But I actually think if you look at it from a bra- almost like a branding point of view, mm-hmm. right? Something like storytelling. All right. Why should I listen to the moth stories as opposed to the there's a lot of storytelling podcasts out there and there's a lot of storytelling shows out there what makes this specifically good yeah and i could say well the way in which they have people tell their stories is really like one of the best ways it's it's actually just classic narrative structure but they really work on the stories to put it within this framework that gets a great story. Was there any question that you could just get up there and tell a story beginning to end? As far as, you know, moving from, from stand-up, moving from telling to oh. jokes to just getting up there and... Yeah, yeah. Well, stand-up and storytelling do not have a lot in common. Yeah, but there's a certain level of confidence to be on stage oh, sure. in front of people. Right, To a, assume quality. that people care what you're doing. <laughs> it's very important. Enough. <laughs> but making that transition into something like storytelling, was that something that came naturally? Yeah, I mean, I think, right, I had the stage presence, and I knew how to, and delivery, right? There's delivery required, but it is a different, Timing, is a different yeah. animal, and of course, the biggest difference is in stand-up, you know, you never want the audience to feel your vulnerability, right? You can talk about vulnerable things, but yeah. in stand-up, you, you are an ultimate authority. Uh, in storytelling, you have missed the mark if your audience doesn't feel your vulnerability or connect to your emotional state on a deep level. That's that's where that's when storytelling is good. When you listen to someone's story and you like go like, "Oh my god, yeah. I know what it's like to be super disappointed or uh experience betrayal or loss or you know, anger or whatever that is." That that emotional connection I think is key to storytelling. I generally consider myself to be uh, an introvert. Yeah. But I'm able. This is this is. I've 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 dated women, and this is a hard thing to explain to them. I have dated women. 
I have dated women. I don't want to brag, but I have dated women in the past. Yes. Wherein, you know, trying to explain how I could go out on stage, you know, and just talk to a large group of people or do interviews and be super comfortable doing that, but not really have the same quality on a one-to-one basis. And I think part of that is when you talk about performance, especially something like stand-up, you're able to put your defenses on. Yeah. And you can be whoever you want to be. Yeah. A a persona, right? You can definitely don a persona. At least as far as, as far as I go, it's easier for me to give that performance if it's on my terms. Yeah. And it's not really on your terms in the same way when you're telling a story or is it? I mean, it is on your terms because you are, it is your story, but you're right. You're right. I think, I think that vulnerability that I was talking to and that you kind of, for it to work, you really do have to be yourself you kind of have to let it all hang out that's why i'd be terrible i hate being myself but you know for me it actually made my stand-up a lot stronger because i think i didn't i was still fiddling around with my voice in stand-up and then the storytelling you know it has it had no um it didn't allow me to fiddle around with my voice it was like no 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 you gotta just you have to tell this story from your life and you have to tell it as you and that's what it is there was there was no compensating and so once I did that and I kind of got into it I went back to my stand-up and I felt like it just opened it up a lot more I was like oh this is not true this is actually where it is and to not I think you know back to just all of my fears of failure I think I I was actually like no actually who you are might be funny and that was like a very it was a very important lesson (laughs) I hate saying things like that but it was it made a huge difference just to like relax and not have to worry about it so much one of the things that Catherine said to me was that you know in a sense a lot of times when they'll, they'll workshop a story with someone it'll be a great story but there won't be an ending and right. a lot of that is just because the person hasn't really worked through it on a sure. personal level. Yes. And people talk about stand-up and music and writing as being a form of therapy. Mm-hmm. But you kind of have to already have gone through that journey in order to really be ready to present it on stage in a coherent way. I think so, yeah. Yeah, I know. They they even have some like light rules on sort of like this many years after a divorce or whatever, you know, but to have some hindsight. But it's true. I mean, I'm even working on a piece right now that I realize doesn't have the right ending because I'm not through it. And I was like, ah, you can't force perspective. <laughs> it's very hard to force How do you know that you're not through something, though? I've gone through plenty of things in my life that I felt like I've been through. And yeah. then it'll manifest itself in That's a different tr- way. That's true. So, right. I think there's a the trajectory that, you know, just the most common way that you would tell a story, you know, something about suffering would be at the end, you know, the sort of like the rise of the human spirit and sort of the conquering of the – and when you feel like you haven't conquered – then the the ending is not going to be just like that. The... There needs to be a happy ending in a sense. No, there doesn't. And actually, writing a more complicated ending, or writing, or feeling, or yeah. being attached to a more complicated ending, which I think is more realistic, of you know, like things are kind of still in motion, and you can have some perspective, or you could have changed a little bit as to who you are, but you're not finished with it. It's just it's 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 a it's a harder ending to write to the satisfaction of an audience. Mm-hmm. 
I think everyone would love with be like, and then, you know, right, and then I found love, and yeah. then I, I had a reason to live, and that's why I made a nonprofit. <laughs> Those are the three story endings possible, by the way. Those are the three, only three story endings possible. You can't tell the story that you die at the end of. I mean, that's a... No. I mean, that would be a closer. Yeah. <laughs> Does this process, though, does uh, the, the fact that you deal with, with your own stories so much that you channel them in these creative ways, do you feel that you're in touch with yourself in ways that you weren't previously? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, does it feel... God, Brian, I don't know. How, can you answer that question? <laughs> as somebody as somebody who has gone through therapy, does is it... I mean, obviously, it's a cliche, but is there something to the idea that, that it is a therapeutic process? There is. I mean, okay, uh, I'm going to get this quote wrong a little bit, so forgive me, everyone, but the classic, a life unexamined yeah. isn't worth living. The unexamined life. Yes. So, right, there is yeah. some level to that. Like, I do think it's good to examine things and analyze them and and try to gain you know some sort of perspective where you are i mean recently i as someone in therapy as well i recently was saying i was sort of frustrated in therapy and i was saying like but why why aren't why do i have to feel this way or why aren't other people thinking like this so a lot of what i do why am i why do i feel like i'm alone in in this struggle and you know she was like well because some people are just fine with whatever like not everybody is examining and the, some, some people, people just sort of and they're okay life. with it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. Like, you don't have to do this. But clearly, you are someone that will do this. So then, and thus, we make maybe art, maybe stand-up, maybe podcasts. I often feel Yes! Oh, my God! All I ever want to do is be like, and then that just slid off my back. Yeah. <laughs> and I just went on, and I bought an ice cream. What a good day. Have you gotten better at that in worse. life? Worse. You've gotten worse. Yeah. you become more neurotic as you've gotten older? I think I just take things personally. Yeah. I just get very emotionally involved. I get, you know, I don't watch sports. The Olympics is on right now. I'm watching it all the time. I watch the Super Bowl, but I don't follow sports in between, which for people that are into sports, they just think that's ridiculous, right? That's not a commitment. But the thing is, I can't because I get so emotionally involved yeah. with what is going on. I can barely watch it. Like, I can't handle it. You tell me, like, okay, we're this is the team we want to win. I mean, I'm beside myself during the game because I'm like, I, I don't know if maybe they won't win. Are they? Can they just win? Can someone just tell me the ending where they win? Because, like, I can't handle it. I can't watch skating right now without, like, I have to turn my head. They're doing a jump. I, if they fall, I'm just seeing all of their dreams fall on the ice. And I don't know if I can go through that with them. Yeah, no, that especially with the Olympics, that's a particularly rough one. I, I, I was in a bar the other night. We were watching it. And it was just like, yeah, this is, I was going to say the last four years of that person's life. But this is an opportunity to get every four years. And obviously, it's like basically leading up to really four or five performances. Yeah. Well, and the fact that, you know, it should be. And they all the athletes always yeah. see this. But we obviously look at them on television. We're like, that person's better than that person. That person screwed up. But the fact that they're even there makes sure. them the elite of the world. You know what I think about, though? I always think about the fact that even like with Olympic athletes, people who get to that level, you retire when you're, what, 20, maybe? I mean, there's some people in their 30s in some of these competitions. I mean, they it, are it, freaking – the commentators are like, oh, my God, they're 34. I'm saying like you, you're lucky if you if you get that far. You know, if you're, if you're a baseball player, a basketball player, and yeah, you, right. you, get to, you get to the professionals, God bless you. You're pretty much good for, good for life. But 
every single other level of professional baseball, you hit your prime, you stop playing, and then that's kind of that's kind of that's it for it. you. Yeah. No, right? There's these like 15-year-old yeah. snowboarders that were competing. I think that was the youngest. Yeah. I, I think the two gold American gold medalists were like 17 or something. Yeah. I, there and there was, was this, and there was this like, where were you when you were 17? I was like, I was probably enjoying my life more than these people were, I, I hope. True. Yeah. True. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I do think like, well, might as well do it when you're 17 because you're waking up at 4 a.m. Sure. Don't care. You don't find that that life has kind of given you perspective of obviously having been through, having dealt with bigger things and and having had a kid and having gone through all these like big monumental moments that that's given you more perspective that you can use to deal with and get through the smaller things in life. That would that would be the trajectory that you would expect. Or it? hope. Yeah, yes and no. Yes and no. I think there's just there are some things that I don't even think about it yeah. anymore. And I'm sure if if like if we were getting very specific, if you were like, like, I don't know, do you care that, you know, this person didn't get back to you or mm. something? Maybe that in the past mm-hmm. I that I would have obsessed over that. And I'm like, Oh my God, everyone has so much stuff going on. Who can expect anyone to get back to anyone? But I actually think this time right now exactly, and I know I'm speaking for many people, maybe I lived with depression and anxiety before, but I would say about, what, 17 months ago, it really hit a new level. And it's a little bit of feeling like I live in a world that I don't understand. You're not talking about anything specific. <laughs> not at all. In the world, are you? And I'm not alone. And so I yeah. used to, I, you know, I was always a bit depressed, but now it feels really crazy. And I feel like that has brought up all kinds of things when you walk around with that all the time. It's a different, it's a, so it's, I feel like I'm questioning things more often than I used to. I've been through depressive bouts in my life. Yeah. But I'm lucky in that I, I think I can, they all point back to something specific that happened. Sure. Now, often it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. One bad thing will happen and the dominoes fall and then everything sort of gets fucked up and horrible in your life. But the fact that it's tied to external forces is probably, I mean, it, it's it's a good thing. The fact Positive. that you can really point to something. Yeah, that is positive, I mean, everything that's happening right now, granted some things are probably irreversible, but like (laughs) things are, things are going to change, you know, and things are, things are maybe a little bit more slowly than we want, but it is cyclical. It does seem to be a, a lower ebb than it ever has before, but to some degree things will return back to normal. This is a conversation every time I have... Uh, someone on the show who's 60 or older, I have to ask them. Y- yeah, well, from your perspective, how have you, you been through yes, this, something there, similar? And? Nope. <laughs> Nixon, was, Nixon was fine. <laughs> you know this thing where you're like, yeah, maybe, maybe George W. Bush wasn't that bad. It's amazing. Even my 88-year-old mother yeah. was like, what's going on? <laughs> I feel like, but that's, she's close to a century of knowledge. Yeah. So anyways, they're right. Don't sweat the small stuff. Well, good thing there's probably plenty of big stuff. <laughs> so I don't sweat the small stuff. There's a lot to be said for neuroses. There's there's a lot to be said for maybe being kind of unsatisfied with uh, with with you know the heights that you've hit in your career and being driven to continue to do things. You know, you've been a freelancer for so much of your life, and yeah. in order to kind of even when you're successful, you have to cobble things together, and you really do have to have a drive. And as much of a bummer as these things can be, sometimes they are things that drive you to continue to strive. Yeah, I mean, my policy. I think the only way that I was able to even make money in the stand-up world is that that my policy was say yes to every gig. Like I just said yes to everything. Big, small, bad, yeah. good, 
whatever. Just say yes. Like if there's an opening in the calendar, say yes. And then I'm happy enough to say that you get to a point, and I'm finding this very hard, where you have to start saying, to actually press, you have to start saying no. Well, yeah. And also, again, <laughs> because, you know, you have a family. And you have a family. So you have to be you have to be a little bit more strategic yeah. and, and prioritize, for sure. No, I mean, I put together a little, a very small spreadsheet of, like, where I take, if I'm not sure about a gig, I'm like, should I take that gig? And so I run it through this little test. Of, of a couple questions that I ask it and I give it a score. If it reaches a certain number, then I, I can take that gig. Is there one thing that you're doing right now that on a professional level gives you more joy than anything else? Yeah, well, right now, well, it's just like what I'm currently like working on yeah. kind of thing. So like right now, I have, I have a lot of scars all over my body from surgeries. Uh, one was from a car accident when I was a kid, other from other surgeries, but I have a lot of them and they're big and they have I'm learning how they have like really informed my identity over the years so I'm really uh, I'm, in, I'm writing a lot about them I'm yeah. talking about them I'm talking to other people about their scars I'm thinking of a podcast called Scar Talk Come on, that's not been done No that's pretty good Were you like hey the sex thing was pretty personal but how do I how do I take this to the next level You know what what it was is that I fi- I was ended up having a friend who has a huge amount of scars as well and we ended up talking to each other and it illuminated to me how how this is just a these scars are a huge part of my life and identity and how I've had to deal with them over the years and I can't be the only one yeah and as soon as I started talking about it a little bit on stage people were coming up to me and being like I have this heart surgery scar. I have this thing from when I was, you know, and it seems like that is a, it's a personal thing and it's a real entry point into, I mean, some of it's like trauma and some of it is just like weird little twists and turns in life. And, you know, uh, surgery scars look very different from, you know, I guess natural scars that are just from someone I fell into a thing or how people deal with them. I know someone who has a scar from stabbing, a stabbing and how they view it now. I mean, that's another thing that people tend to be ashamed of. Scars. Yeah. Yeah. I actually had someone say to me recently, I don't, this is not, I, I'm still so, um, I'm still analyzing this comment. They say, I always, in a, in a party, I always look for the woman, it was a man saying this, I always look for the woman with a scar in her face because I know that she will have a personality. It's one of the most fucked up things I've ever heard in my entire life, but I am still analyzing it. It was just said to me a few days ago. Well, you've got a lot of scars. <laughs> Do you feel like you have a lot of personality? Is I, there... I, I hope that there's other correlations. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, I'm, I'm, so now I'm, yeah, I'm thinking about scars a lot. I'm thinking about scars, the threshold of scars. Are they healing? And yeah. And then the way that uh, I got it, then I got another scar and I felt like that scar made me look at the other scars from a different point of view. There is a reason why it's such a consistent metaphor. Yeah? The scar. The scar? Yeah. Scar tissue. I, I mean, this is like, it's like one of, it's like one of the great linguistic metaphors is, is scarring and healing and it's a constant. It is, it is a constant. I actually think there's th- boundaries and thresholds, but I'm working on it. You think scars are boundaries and thresholds? Yeah, I think they're like, um, there's a word, I, re- I took a cultural anthropology degree that yeah. has amounted to nothing except for this one thing. It's a word I like, it's just not a very often used word, but it's a word I really like, 
liminal, which is often used in when I read the cultural anthropology stuff as like a it's a twixt in betwixt and between state of state of being. So when someone's going through, let's say, like a bar mitzvah, yeah. there's a period of time where they have left uh, being a child, but they haven't gone through the rituals yet to become a man. So in that in-between period, it is liminal. They are in between these two things. So like your Hoff Torah portion. <laughs> That's right. So long. <laughs> so I think, uh, I feel like scars are kind of like that yeah. because I feel like they are somewhere in between wounded and healed. I mean, they are a medical thing of healed but they i mean they don't go away they're a sure. very large potentially reminder and that gets back to the thing we were saying before about the 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 moth i mean obviously you're not going to write about the scars while they're still bleeding you're not going to write about the scars while you're still bleeding so how long when they scab when is the right time when they scab when they lose the color they're never going to go away when is the right time There you go. That was author, comedian, and radio host of NPR's Ask Me Another. That was Ophira Eisenberg. Thanks so much to her for taking the time to do that. Really enjoy that conversation. And her debut memoir, Screw Everyone Sleeping My Way to Monogamy, is out now on Seal Press. Highly recommend you check that out. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can like us on Facebook, rate or review us on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr. Com. That is the first best place to get all of your R-I-Y-L related information. If you've got any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. And that's about it for this week. So stick around because we'll be back just about this time next week with another episode of R-I-Y-L.